The main thing in life is putting in more than you take out. The main thing in life is being left alone to do what you want. The main thing in life is having fun. The main thing in life is finding someone who will make you happy. The main thing in life is giving your children the best possible opportunities. The main thing in life is finding some security for yourself. Enough savings and investments so you don't need to worry about the future. Maybe one of those statements strikes a chord with you. Or maybe you'd say, for me, the main thing in life is getting through one day at a time. I don't have any grand or purpose or priority than that. Making it from breakfast to dinner time is as much as I can think about. Well, here we all are, sitting comfortably, and I assume that you don't need to be anywhere else in the next few moments. So let's take the time to think about our priorities. We're going to do that by turning again to the book of Acts. And we're going to get a look at the Apostle Paul's priorities. And that will help us to think then about our own. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 21. And the context of where this chapter begins is that Paul has just finished saying goodbye to the church leaders from Ephesus. I'm going to read chapter 21, verses 1 to 36. In the church Bible, that's page 1117. Luke writes, After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? 
I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the man and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, He ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. This is God's word. We're going to look at this this morning in terms of a couple of contrasts and then a great privilege. First of all, the contrasts. Personal comfort or obedience to God. Then, personal clout or the good of Christ's church. And then finally, the great privilege. 
following in the steps of Jesus. So first, in verses 1 to 16, personal comfort or obedience to God. Traveling by sea in the ancient world was a fairly dangerous undertaking. So as much as possible, ships tended to stay as close as they could to the coastline. And then each night they could put into port. That explains all the stops that Luke mentions in verses 1 to 3. But eventually Paul and his team get to Tyre. Chapter 20 finished here in Miletus. And their next major stop is over there in Tyre. That's about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. Paul is headed for Jerusalem. But look again what we're told in verse 4. After telling us about their arrival in Tyre, Luke says, Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. Doesn't that strike you as unusual? These believers urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, and they do it through the Spirit. And yet Paul goes against their urging. He carries on towards Jerusalem. Is Paul disobeying the Holy Spirit? And it gets more puzzling if we remember what Paul said to the Ephesian elders at Miletus. In our passage last week, he told them this. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Is the Holy Spirit saying one thing to Paul and something different to these believers entire? Well, no, I don't think that's what's going on. It seems the Holy Spirit revealed to these believers that Paul is going to suffer in Jerusalem. And their response to what the Spirit shows them is to try and stop Paul from going. But look at some more of Paul's words from last time. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. The attitude of the believers entire is, if you know you're going to suffer in Jerusalem, then of course you shouldn't go. But Paul's attitude is, because serving Jesus means more to me than my life, and certainly more than my comfort, I will obey his calling, even if it means I suffer for it. So the believers in Tyre and Paul are looking at this from two very different angles. For the believers in Tyre, comfort comes first. For Paul, serving Jesus comes first. And let's be very clear, Paul is not a masochist. He doesn't like suffering for its own sake. 
In fact, often in his ministry, we've seen him move on from difficult situations. He didn't try to chase after suffering and dive into it wherever he found it. But in this case, the Holy Spirit has given a clear command to go to Jerusalem. And for Paul, that trumps everything else. It even trumps his natural human concern for safety and comfort and even life itself. Well, what has just happened in Tyre happens in a more striking way in Caesarea. That's 40 miles closer to Jerusalem. Paul and his team move on to Caesarea and Luke tells us in verse 10... After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. We've met Agabus before in the book of Acts. Back in chapter 11, we were told that through the Spirit, he predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And Luke was careful to tell us that this happened during the reign of Claudius. So Agabus has a reputation as a trustworthy prophet. He's a man who is to be taken seriously. But you'll notice here, Agabus himself does not tell Paul to stay away from Jerusalem. His message is simply about what will happen there. It's the other believers, in fact, including Luke, who's writing this. It's they who decide that in the light of what Agabus has said, Paul shouldn't go. After all, if you know what's waiting for you there, and if you can avoid walking into it, Why on earth would you go? Verse 13. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Paul is going to walk on towards prison and hardships. And he's going to do it because he has a bigger priority than his own comfort and safety. He lives to see the name of Jesus spread. Or as he put it in chapter 20, he lives to testify to the gospel of God's grace. One writer says, Paul is controlled by a larger purpose. And that larger purpose trumps Paul's natural love for comfort and safety. Again, it's important to realize that Paul was as human as you and me. He wasn't a robot. We know from his letters that he was often afraid. But even his fears of what it will cost him to obey take second place to his determination to obey. When you read about Paul, or when you read about any other Christian who suffers for Jesus, don't think they're above feeling all the things you and I feel. 
They're not. But what makes the difference is this. They recognize that to have Jesus is even better than having human comfort and safety. And so just like the man in our reading earlier, the man who found the treasure hidden in the field, or the merchant who found the pearl of great value, just like those men, Christians like Paul who are prepared to suffer for Christ are prepared to let everything else go for the sake of Christ. Now we've noticed that Paul didn't have a policy that if there was danger, he always had to stay in it if he found himself in it. Or to run into it if he wasn't in it. He's going to this danger in Jerusalem because God has clearly led him to go to Jerusalem. So we can stop and ask the obvious question here. What if I never get a clear compulsion of the Holy Spirit to go to somewhere uncomfortable? Or to do some uncomfortable thing? So long as I never get a direct message from God to do something like that, can I do my best to avoid suffering and pain? Is that what we're saying? Well, it is true. God may never give you a direct word of guidance like he does here with Paul. But he has given you a very clear word of guidance. It's this. Simply obeying this will give you more than enough opportunities to let comfort and safety take second place. Now that my dad has retired, he spends a lot of time helping out at churches in Scotland that don't have pastors. And some of you may know from the news that as a denomination, the Church of Scotland is not committing itself to follow the Bible's teaching on sex. And as a result of that, several large churches of Scotland who want to hold to the Bible have decided to leave the denomination. Some of them have left. And you might say, well, that's no big deal. It's just paperwork, isn't it? Actually, no, it's not. Leaving the denomination means you have to leave your church building. Even though each congregation is responsible for the upkeep of its building, the building ultimately belongs to the Church of Scotland. One church in the center of Glasgow recently spent several million pounds of their own money upgrading and refurbishing their building. Apparently, quite a few church members gave up their family holidays for several years, and they used the money to give to the church building project. But within the last few months, that church has left the denomination, and so they've lost the use of their building. Now they're meeting in hired halls, and the building they spent millions on is sitting empty. My dad tells me that although many other churches are discussing leaving the denomination, they're now having second thoughts. What's happening is that their priorities are being tested. 
Which is more important to them? Is it the comfort and convenience of having the building you've put a lot of work into? Or is their priority obedience to God's word, which is being abandoned by the organization that owns their building? That's just one example. Each one of us is going to face examples in our own situation. And here's the thing. Very rarely will the choice present itself in a way that's clear cut or black and white. Very rarely is it going to be a choice between denying Christ and staying alive or confessing allegiance to Christ and being killed. Some Christians do face choices like that. But you and I are unlikely to face that. It's almost certain that the choice is going to be much more subtle for you and me. Maybe it'll come like this. I know the Bible says I should only marry another believer. But there's this great person. And I'm the only Christian they know. If I tell them I'm not interested, I'll lose the chance to witness to them. I could be their only chance of becoming a Christian. No, I'd never actually marry them. I'll just date them for a while. And I'll see if they become a Christian. That's just a very spiritual sounding excuse for putting your own comfort above obedience to God. It's a spiritual sounding way of doing what you want to do rather than what God tells you to do. He tells you to avoid becoming yoked together with an unbeliever. And that starts long before marriage. Think about Paul. He could have come up with a very spiritual excuse for not going to Jerusalem. Paul could have said, the church in Corinth needs another visit from me. Those people are so messed up. They need more help from me. I'll just get back on the boat. I know it's not what God told me to do, but I'm just trying to be as useful as I can. Paul could have tried that. But he has this clear word from God. And that's his priority. Maybe for you, the test of your priority will be pressure not to rock the boat at work. To go along with something that you know isn't totally above board. It's easy to come up with excuses for that. My family depend on my wage. In fact, God has given me responsibility to provide for my family. I can't risk ruining this good situation that God has given me. It can happen to pastors too. Pastors can start saying to themselves, if I follow through with this church discipline, or if I say this to that person, the repercussions could ruin my whole ministry. I'd better not risk it. All of us can find wonderful excuses for almost every kind of disobedience. Disobedience. 
And we can drag other people into the picture too. We can use them as excuses for our disobedience. But the bottom line is always the same. What is our priority? Is it personal comfort or is it obedience to God? And often the choices we are faced with are not clear cut. Often they're not all black and white. Even when we have the right priority, it's not always easy to know what to do. I understand that. But even as we try to make decisions in the midst of fuzziness and grayness, we are still going to be guided by one priority or the other. So which is it for you? Personal comfort or obedience to God? Paul goes on to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, another priority is tested. Look down to verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers greeted us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. Here's the second priority that's being tested for Paul. Personal clout or the good of Christ's church. And in order to see that, we need to figure out what the situation is here. First of all, remember what Paul has experienced for the last number of years. He has been the beloved founder of many churches. God has been working through Paul with amazing power. During his time in Ephesus, we were told God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Not just ordinary miracles. During his farewell tour of the churches, the believers wept. They embraced him. They were grieved at the thought of never seeing him again. Yes, Paul was hated and persecuted by many people outside the church. But he was a big man inside the church. He had big authority and influence probably more than any other human leader at that time. But all of that was outside of Jerusalem. When he arrives in Jerusalem, it's all very different. He's not the senior figure here. In the Jerusalem church, James is the leading figure. Paul has very little clout in Jerusalem. Now, there's no indication that James or the other church leaders are nasty to Paul or that they feel threatened by him or that they want to sideline him. 
Not at all. Verse 20 says that when they hear Paul's report on what God has done among the Gentiles through his ministry, they praised God. There's no evidence of rivalry from the Jerusalem church leaders. But the fact is, they minister in Jerusalem. Paul has come to Jerusalem, and that creates a problem for the church. They need to consider what's best for the church in Jerusalem. So how does Paul's arrival create a problem? Well, James and the others explain that in Paul's absence, while he's been away evangelizing Gentiles, thousands of Jews in Jerusalem have put their faith in Jesus. And I know it's stating the obvious, but all those new Jewish Christians have a Jewish background. They know now that keeping the Jewish law doesn't get them into heaven. It's faith in Jesus that does that. Only faith in Jesus. But they also know the Old Testament law came from God. So they have great respect for it. And they're still trying to work out what place their Jewish heritage might play for them as Jewish Christians. The issue of the law is a sensitive issue. And on top of that, the city of Jerusalem is an incredibly tense place at this point in time. It's a tense place today. It was possibly even more tense back in New Testament times. Jewish nationalism was rising against their Gentile Roman rulers. Jewish assassins called Sicarii were murdering other Jews who were suspected of collaborating with Gentiles. So the situation is this. Jewish Christians are already a bit sensitive about the Old Testament law. And they will become targets for the Sicarii if they're hanging out with someone whose allegiance to Judaism is suspect. Someone like Paul. Apparently reports are circulating that he teaches Jews to turn away from Moses. That means the law given by God through Moses. But those reports are just a misrepresentation of Paul's position. Yes, when he finds teachers who are telling Gentile Christians they must keep the law... Then Paul gets fire in his eyes and he stomps all over the teachers. And the reason is that those teachers are adding to the gospel. The gospel says, trust in Jesus and be saved. Paul has no tolerance for people who say, trust in Jesus and keep the Jewish law and you'll be saved. But Paul is not opposed to Jewish Christians doing Jewish things. Paul is no enemy of the law. He's an enemy of those who try to mix the law in with salvation. So these rumors spreading about Paul are false. James and the elders of the church realize they're false. But they decide it's important to prove that. And so they say to Paul in verse 23, do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. 
We can't be clear on all the details of this vow, but it's similar to the one that Paul took on his own initiative back in chapter 18. So this is not a fraud or a deception. Paul is not putting on an act here. It's the kind of thing Paul did. But think how easily he could have taken offense here. Think how easily he could have got prickly about taking orders from James. Had James planted churches all over the map? Had James addressed the world-famous Areopagus in Athens? Had God performed extraordinary miracles through James? Paul could have got pretty defensive about giving up his clout and being told what to do. But Paul has a bigger priority than his own clout. His priority is the good of Christ's church. So however much he may have been tempted to roll out his credentials here, he takes the order and he carries it out. Verse 26. The next day Paul took the man and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple and gave notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Paul is sharp enough to know that the unity of the church is at stake here. He knows that even slight insensitivity to these Jewish believers could lead to a Jew-Gentile split in the church. And it could put the believers' lives at risk from the nationalists, the sicari. Because, of the good, because the good of the church is a priority for Paul, he doesn't get blinded by his own self-importance. He's able to be sensitive to the delicate situation. He's able to see the wisdom in what James tells him to do. And for the good of the church, he does it. What about you? What motivates the things you do and say in church? And let's be very clear, we're not talking about issues of obedience or disobedience to God here. For those issues, we need to go back to our first point. What we're talking about here are issues where there's more than one right way to do things. Paul did not go through with this vow out of obedience to God. The requirements of the Old Testament law were fulfilled in Christ. Paul is no longer obliged to keep the law. But he chooses to keep it in this instance for the good of the church, for the unity and well-being of the church. So we can ask again, When debatable things don't go our way in church, how do we respond? And what motivates our response? Do we accept the decision? Or do we rebel against it? Do we work to undermine it after the fact? Do we try to gather supporters to our cause? Do we whisper and mutter about the decision? Do we protest by pulling back on our input into the work of the church? 
And if we do any of those things, what is motivating us? Is it the good of the church? And the unity of the church? And the witness of the church? Or is it wounded pride that's motivating us? Because what we wanted to happen didn't happen. Because our voice didn't carry the day. Because we didn't end up having the clout we thought we deserved to have. What is our priority as members of Christ's church? Is it to get our own way, whatever the cost to the church? Is it to be proven right, no matter what damage we do in the process? Or is our priority the unity and well-being of the church? And we can push this a little bit further. How do we react when the decision that was taken turns out badly? That's basically what happens here in Jerusalem. As Paul obeys the decision of James and the elders, it all gets very messy. We'll see in a moment that it ends up in a riot. How do we react when the decision we didn't like in the first place turns messy? Do we gloat about it? See, I knew it would never work. If only they'd listen to me. Maybe next time they will listen to me. What is my priority? Personal clout or the good of Christ's church? Prioritizing obedience to God and prioritizing the good of the church will probably hurt us. It's important to realize that. Getting our priorities right is not a magic formula for a trouble-free life. But it is the way of great honor because it is following in the steps of Jesus. All of the commentators on this passage point out the similarities between Paul and Jesus. We've seen Paul pressing on to Jerusalem in obedience to God, even though he knew what was ahead. And in Luke's gospel, we were told that at a certain point in his ministry, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Literally, he set his face for Jerusalem. And he knew what was ahead of him. At one point he said this to his disciples. We are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. If a man or woman truly wants to follow Jesus they're going to have similar experiences to him. I don't mean that they're going to die for the sin of the world. Only Jesus could do that. But following in his steps means that things are not always going to be comfortable. 
It means that we will have to give up fighting for our own way sometimes. Even when we're convinced that our own way is the wisest and the best way. Look again at what happens to Paul. First notice as we look at verse 27, notice how like Jesus, Paul is unjustly accused. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. Both of those accusations against Paul are false. But Paul's opponents get what they wanted. Verse 30, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him! Where have we heard that before? About 30 years before this, another crowd in Jerusalem shouted the same thing about another man. A man who lived to do the will of God. A man who lived for the good of God's people. Thirty years before this, Jesus stood before the crowd. And we're told with one voice, they shouted to Pilate, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Give us the murderer, the lawbreaker, and crucify Jesus. What is it that enables us to choose obedience to God over personal comfort? What enables us to choose the good of the church over getting our own way? It's the knowledge that we are following our Savior. The one who gave up heaven and gave up his life so we could have life and find a place in heaven. In this life, we have the great honor, in some degree, to follow in his steps. Following in his steps by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following after him. Let's remind ourselves of that 
as we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. <laughs>